Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. We have the pleasure of hearing from a host of voices today on Unpack challenges in their lives. So we're going to start in the great state of Illinois, and I am thrilled to say hello to Elizabeth. Thank you for calling in. Elizabeth, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me. Just happy to be here. I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, I love to hear it, and I'm really curious about uh, what challenging situation or conversation that's on your mind. Yeah, I think... Um... I know we kind of talked a lot about COVID and my kind of not permanent living situations in college. I think that's what we kind of talked about originally as being a challenge that I didn't totally understand how challenging it was until I almost was out of that and I had time to reflect. Wow. So for listeners sake, Elizabeth, just give them a little bit of context so they can kind of appreciate what it's like in your shoes. Of course. So in the in my sophomore year of college, which was last year, um, I lived in a sorority house with 60 other girls, and this was also during COVID, so we had a unique set of rules that we were supposed to follow, and as you can all imagine, and I'm sure you've all experienced, um, we were kind of working with these rules as we were going, and no one had really experienced this. It is hard to maintain social distancing when you have 50 roommates, and I think a lot of people were pretty upset with how the rules ended up being enforced. Um, as someone who never ended up getting COVID in the house, I was pretty much forced to be on a lockdown that other girls with antibodies weren't. Um, it was unfair. A lot of people wanted to take it to press. We ended up not doing that. It was really challenging. Um, I was sharing a room with two other people really close quarters. So for quarantining and not having my own space, it was like a very new experience for me. Oh my gosh. I'm really I like, <laughs> wow. So first of all, kudos to you to get through it. And, you know, I am, I am wondering, did you, did you think that there was any other option than just sucking up and dealing with it? Or were you like, I got to get out of here? Oh, I, that's so funny you ask. There were so many conversations I had with my school, with my family. It was tough because we all signed a lease on this property prior to, you know, COVID happening. And I think a lot of girls were upset because we weren't able to get out of this lease. I mean, of course, that's how life works. You don't, you <laughs> sign a lease and you're buying to it. But I think everyone was like, these are unique circumstances. Why can't we get out of it? And the school offered us the option of dropping out of our lease in the sorority house, but that would mean that we were not allowed to live elsewhere on campus. We would have to be at home. So I think that was the most frustrating part. They pretty much put us with the decision of you either are here and you're kind of locked here or 
you get sent home because you have a legitimate medical reason. It was like extremely frustrating. So I guess I kind of just looked at it as a, you know, I'm suck it up. I at least live with my friends. We're going to make it work, hopefully. So how would you rate your own mental stress? I mean, is this like the most mentally stressed out you feel like you've ever been in your life? I am really wondering because I, I have nephews who are at school and I just was like, oh my gosh, I cannot no. really imagine, you know, getting tested <laughs> uh, every I'm other day. I'm not going to lie to you. I was at a pretty, pretty low point. Um, I barely left my house. I was forced to not leave my house. Um, every time we had a new case, positive case, everyone else was required to lock down for two weeks. And that was locked down even to go outside and like go for a walk. It was kind of ridiculous, especially when I didn't have even my own private space. That made it, ex that made it super, super hard. Yeah, that was pretty low point. <laughs> So let me just make sure I heard this. You couldn't go outside for a walk? Like you were literally had to stay in the room? Yes. Well, we had to stay in the house. <laughs> so I guess there was some wiggle room. You can go to the kitchen. <laughs> but yeah, walking. And I lived on a street with other Greek houses. And everyone was supposed to be abiding by these rules. And as if it couldn't get any worse. There were people that would snitch if they saw women out of the house walking to places. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a very bad movie. Um, I know. I know, uh, right? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so so talk about you know, the conversations you had and just what you were learning, I guess, about yourself. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you can tell, in a state of shock that it was quite like this. So, you know, how... How are you, what was the Elizabeth internal conversation and, um, you know, you know, staying physically well, like I talk about self-care, right? Sleeping well and all that. Were you able to sleep? Were you able to eat well? Luckily sleeping, sleeping has never been a problem for me. I'm a good sleeper. So that was good. But no, we, we were fed. We had a meal plan in the house, but, um, you know, I can't say, <laughs> We got a lot of like very carby foods, a um, couple salads every here and there. Not a lot of variety. That one was tough. And they don't really have the resources for us to make our own food. So I know that was the, I'm not a big chef myself, but I know that was a tough point for a lot of girls in the house. We were paying for a meal plan. And because of that, that was supposed to substitute us cooking for ourselves at all. And so I think it was hard for us to watch some of the girls in my chapter didn't live in the house, some of my friends, and it was super tough to watch them have the freedom to cook, to leave their house, to go to the library. And we, like, essentially were just, it, it felt like almost like a, I don't even know how to describe it. It was, it felt like I'm almost 21 and I live it being locked in the house watched over by like a, a house mom who's essentially just an older woman that lives in the house with us don't get to pick what i eat and the day is just over and over again so i think i learned that i have a lot of preferences for how i want to live and that that's a good thing and i learned i always considered myself very extroverted but i <laughs> realized how important alone time is to me and that to recharge because i was not having that enough 
Well, I appreciate you growing from this. Doing during this, did you? I mean, if you think about it in hindsight, were there conversations you could have had with whoever the powers to be were? I mean, were who were you exactly? You all, I don't want to use the word negotiating, you know, but trying to. No, I. Yeah, you're kind of right. I didn't even know really myself. There were women um, that were in charge of. They were like owned the property of my house, my sorority house. We really tried to get in touch with them. Um, the school, as you can imagine, <laughs> did kind of took this as a, oh, this is great. Everyone in Greek life is kind of locked in their house, so we don't have to deal with them. <laughs> I think that was kind of a big win for the school. So it wasn't there wasn't much to do with them. But as of for the national headquarters for my sorority, there were a lot of angry emails. I think especially about the whole women who get COVID and then recover essentially of antibodies for a couple of months and they are free to leave the house. They are free to go do things. Whereas those of us who were in the house, we respected the rules, not that everyone that got COVID didn't, but you know, and we are facing the punishment of being locked in this house, watching others of our peers go back and forth as they please because they got COVID. It was almost like it was a reward And this was, I mean, multiple chapters on my campus were feeling the same thing. A couple people wrote to bigger news outlets. Um, I go to school in Madison, Wisconsin, and people were trying to reach out to local Madison news. Um, The women who ran my house first semester, they said, hey, we really appreciate your basically like a throwaway response. We really appreciate your cooperation with these. We know it's a tough time. You know, you signed this lease and very passive and it was super frustrating. They talked about, you know, winter break, you'll all be home and we'll reevaluate the rules. And when you come back for second semester, then we'll decide if, you know, getting out of your lease is something that could be possible. But, you know, by the time like February rolls around, it's almost the end of school and, you're not looking to find a new apartment and move in. So it was overall just a pretty frustrating thing. And it felt a lot like we were kind of yelling for help and no one was listening. Oh, I'm so sad. I, I, I get, so you tell me if, it, if this is the feeling, but it just feels like genuine, like unfair, like just a sense of unfair. Yeah. And, and, it, yeah, felt, and it, it felt as an adult to be like, oh, this is unfair. Like that felt so silly. <laughs> but it kind of really was. So talk to me. I am, I could imagine calls with parents and were they uh, empathetic or they were defiant? Oh my God, we'll find a way. And, and you know, how, how did you, were they just, were you just venting to them? Like, you know, cause it, it does strike me as you're, you're kind of the reality is there's not a lot we can do here. Right. And so yeah, I think, right. I think you're exactly right. They were empathetic to the situation. Um, they, you know, we're, we're there for you <laughs> if you need to talk. But at the end of the day, it was, we're doing our job. No one knows what's happening right now. No one knows how to create rules for this. We're trying our best. Thanks for being patient with us. It was just, uh, it felt as though there were no backup plans that were put into place before this. There were really, I mean, we had a meeting before moving into the house that basically said something along the lines of, There will be no common spaces, no meals in the kitchen, no leaving the house. 
except for school things. At that point, I was like, why, why do you even want us there? This sounds like almost more work for you guys to keep track of us in this house. But so I think it was a lot of they listened to us. They understood our pain. But at the end of the day, they kind of dismissed it because they had, you know, bigger things to worry about by trying to figure out our rules. And so I think, yes, extremely empathetic, not motivated to make any changes. <laughs> so let's take the high road. And I, and I listeners have heard me say this, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So really kudos to hmm. you for, for just even being light about it because, and I don't sense bitterness, but I could see people very bitter about this. And what, you know, when you think about folks in power uh, or folks who have the control, I'm wondering what comes to you, Elizabeth, for how you might want to be like, how does it change your view? You know, if, if you were to be in the power position. Yeah. I think what I wrestled with a lot is it felt I've never been one to like, and I'm not saying this is a good thing at all. I've never been one to really stand up to authority. Even when I have, you know, a bit of a gut reaction that something might be wrong. Um, I'm very trusting. I would not say that's a like strength. I think a lot of what I was wrestling with was, you know, this feels wrong, but it also feels wrong to talk back to these women in power. I mean, look at all they're trying to do for us. It seems like they do care. I think that was the hardest part for me. And then I kind of had a moment where I was like, you know, maybe it's time to stop putting these people on such a pedestal and realize that I have needs and I was promised certain things and I didn't get that. And just because they're older than me or in a position of power, like that doesn't mean I can't fight back a little bit. I mean, I'm paying. I deserve that, too. I think I had a moment of, you know, these are women in power, but I can work with them. I don't have to be completely submissive to these, especially when I don't feel like these rules are justified. Was that a big epiphany for you? Yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> I've like always in my life been very much of a rule follower. Um, and I'm not saying I broke a ton of rules in the house, but I know there's a, oh my gosh, I'm a psychologist. This is always why I go back to, I'm a psychology major at school. And like the, one of the things you learn in psych 101 is like your last stage of development. I don't remember whose theory it is, but your last stage of development is when you move from understanding what rules are right and wrong and obeying that to understanding which rules are just and unjust and making your own decisions. I almost felt like this is the year that I stepped into that new developmental stage of realizing, you know what, I'm almost 21 years old. I'm living in a house where an older woman is essentially babysitting me so that I don't leave to go for a walk. That's not, that was wrong. <laughs> I am so proud of that insight that you have about your development you. and, and time. That's really, really great. So, you know, give yourself a ton of credit because I'm totally cheering for you. If you step back and you're outside and looking in, how would you say you've grown from this? I became a lot more confident from this experience. Not only was I working with the women in authority um, that I was kind of answering to, I, I pretty much was in close quarters with two people for months on end. Um, 
where I've always kind of taken a back seat in conflict. I kind of learned to speak up for myself, um, demand some respect in areas. I had needs in the house that I didn't understand that I needed alone time, space, boundary things. I had to have those tough conversations with my roommates, which I never thought I would be prepared for. I never thought I would need. I'm like an easygoing person. I never thought that I would find myself saying, I need this from you for my well-being. But I had to have those conversations. And it, there was a lot of, there were a lot of like moral discussions we had in the house of, you know, all my friends are going out and going to bars and stuff. And, you know, they kind of are putting this fear in us of, you're going to lock down the house if you get COVID. Do I do I try to enjoy myself, enjoy my time here, or for fear of hurting the other women in the house? So I think I had to make a lot of decisions like that. And, I mean, all thinking through all of that. And, I mean, I was living on my own. I didn't have my parents there to say, you know, oh, this is right, this is wrong. And especially with COVID, I think no one kind of knew what was right and what was wrong. It's up to me to make a lot of those decisions. and. I think that was just all such an important learning thing for me. It felt like the first time that I was really living on my own. And, you know, maybe there's no right or wrong answer to should I go to my friend's house or should I stay in like everyone else and risk going crazy because I haven't talked to anyone. So that was there were a lot of decisions like that that really tested my kind of moral compass and also like a lot of things that I had to decide, you know, to take care of myself first and not be thinking so much about others' needs in front of my own. I think that was the biggest, of all that, I think that was the biggest takeaway. I learned to be confident in doing things for myself instead of putting others first in, obviously, situations where it's appropriate. And I think that was a huge realization that I needed to have. And so for all that was annoying in this situation, I mean, I don't regret it for the lessons that I learned and things I learned about myself. So. Uh, I'm so proud of you. That is <laughs> su such a, what a great takeaway, right? Take care of myself first, folks, right? Yeah. Learn to be confident doing things for myself. And, you know, this is for all young people. I do know that often for women in leadership, sometimes this can be a little bit more challenging. So I'm really, I'm thrilled to hear it, the kind of wheel spinning inside your own head. And I, I, listen, I get that you see the impact on others. So it's never done in a selfish way. Um, but I, I'm, um, I'm really heartened and, you know, we'll have to have you back on the show when you have more freedom in your life. But I, I really want to thank you, um, Elizabeth, for, for joining me, for using your voice so powerfully. And uh, I'm in awe of, of all you're doing. I'm cheering for you. Thank you. And I'm so, I'm so glad that I got to be a guest. This is an awesome experience. I'm glad I got to talk about it. You know, even yeah, talking I, about it, I'm reminded of all these good things I took away. So I'm yeah. about to leave this feeling a lot better. <laughs> yeah, well, you're making me feel a lot better too. And uh, I imagine things will come up. So you are also always welcome back. And I feel uh, much better in life for bright lights like you. So, you know, I'm cheering for you. And you well, thank are you part so much. of and Thanks for solution. having me. My pleasure. And you take good care. You too. Okay, listen, folks, the world's going to be okay. We have amazing young people like this um, saving the day. I am excited now to welcome Stephanie to the show. Stephanie, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what a tough situation or um, 
sense of conversation is on your mind? Well, my industry is in insurance benefits. I'm an insurance broker, and I have been in this industry for over 30 years, and I am a very successful woman in an industry which is mostly associated with men. So there's not a lot of women in the industry and um, on, on any side of it uh, in terms of working with a vendor, um, such as an insurance carrier, um, working with even the, the clients, because many of the clients you're dealing with, the decision makers that are, are men. Um, and so it, it tends to be a challenge. Um, and it still continues to be a challenge even after so many years and as things have been changing. And you have to learn how to kind of navigate through the system to get what you need. And sometimes it causes problems because when you have a client that needs something, you have to be aggressive. And people don't like when you're aggressive to get an answer. They look at, at that, that it's not very you know popular to... Um, demand something because you need it for a client, and we're talking about healthcare, which is very, very sensitive um, to many people, and they need things now. They can't wait. They don't like to be told that um, they can't have the kind of services that they need when they need it. So it, it is a challenge. Oof. Bravo to brava to you to stay high in um, in a space. It's funny. I was talking to someone about insurance recently and kind of be the lone gal out there. So real big kudos to you. And I, I hope other women will follow through so that there are more of you. Um, just so I know in your immediate world, seriously, are you like the only woman? Are there um, a few other senior women that you can band with or is it just you? Well, so I'm a broker and um, in terms of being a broker, most of the, the top producers are going to be males. Um, in the support roles, you'll find mostly women, ironically. In fact, um, on my team, it's, it's only women. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're having to go to an insurance company and you're having to deal with the appropriate people, a lot of times it is men. And you have to be very skillful in terms of how you communicate in order to get what you need. Um, because if you push too hard, then, you know, you're considered, um, you know, offensive and um, demanding, and it, it, it really hurts you to get the outcome that you need for your client. Yeah. So can you talk us through, because obviously you've experimented and figured this out to continue to be successful, but, you know, I, I know that um, I always work with particularly young women and say, you've got to find a way where you can be you and quote unquote demanding, quote unquote aggressive, right? How can you be effective? And just talk us through like what hasn't worked or didn't work for you so well and what has? Well, I think you have to balance um, when you ramp it up. And so in the past, um, you know, when I was younger, I would go from zero to 60, and, and I've learned over the years, you know, it's better to get uh, things done with, with sugar than spice. Um, but there is a point, and, you, and there's a fine line in terms of when you have to ramp it up and what you need to do um, to get to the next level. Because unfortunately, if you don't um, and you just sit back, 
things just linger, linger, linger. It's your reputation, and you're out there um, trying to secure business. If, if you don't deliver, people know that. So you have to really balance that, and that is that's the tough part. Um, and I think that's just experience over the years. But then also you build a reputation that people know that you're going to get this done and you mean business. And so you you tend to have less issues because you have a reputation and people know that, you know, you're, you're not trying to hurt people. I mean, you're there because you're making a difference for somebody. And, and at the end, they really understand that. That's huge. I really want to lean into this because I know some female friends and great heart wanting to serve the client. But the reputation one creates can serve you or it cannot. And if you get into this where uh, too aggressive, it's just a turn off, it can be really hard to turn that around. And I want folks to just, you know, just appreciate the thinking of it over the long haul and how one might get there. And I think being true to yourself, one, one way that can, that can be helpful is when you're in situations to really take a step back and saying, Hey, I'm trying to help the whole here. So you, you mentioned making a difference. So being clear, Hey, we're all here to help, whether it's the insurance industry look good, whether it's to help clients get the right products and to, to take the high road, um, the larger benefit and getting alignment on that, right? No one's in this to like hurt the insurance industry or to have someone pay too little or pay too much. We want it to be right. And having the skill to raise that saying, and then notice, right. If someone's kind of pushing back on you, Hey, I'm noticing a little pushback and I'm wondering if I'm not understanding. Cause I know we all want the same thing. Now, if the interests are divergent, it's calling that out and figuring a way to work that. Um, but I just throw that out there as a, perhaps a way to um, build alignment for what we all want to have happen. And then not at, me versus them, us versus them. And if, if one can be the hero to help other people look great as you achieve your aims, you know, that kind of win for all that, that's the kind of reputation you want to be known for, like willing to have the tough conversation, honoring the other point of view, but also holding firm. And, and you know, that's something that can be very constructive for women versus like, oh my God, stay away from her, right? She's going to lose it. So I just, what thoughts on that? How's that landing? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of different parts to that. I think there's kind of steps to things. So first, um, a lot of times I will ask people to put themselves in the shoes of whoever's having the issue or the problem so that perhaps that might open their eyes that this is not something you can kind of just foo-foo and say, you know, we'll get it done at some point. Um, I, because I think when people visualize how it's really affecting somebody because what they're doing um, is not moving fast enough. So it's affecting the person you're trying to help or the organization you're trying to help. Sometimes that, that does make a difference. Um, and also, unfortunately, being the squeaky wheel, people don't like to be asked a million times to do something. So if you are very loud about it and that's, um, when I say that I, I'm talking about emails and texts, there's ways of throwing that out um, so that people have to respond because they, people don't like 
constant reminders to do things. Um, and so I, I found that that's really helpful. There's a way of sending things out to get people to move to the, to the next um, part of what they need to do. And then if that doesn't work, then what you have to do is get people that are above them to kind of, kind of corral um, to make whatever needs to be done happen. So you have to align yourself with somebody who is going to help get that person to do what you need them to do. Um, so th there is a, a whole process to it and there is steps. Hopefully the first thing is just saying to somebody, Hey, look, I need you to do this. Um, and this is a reason why, and, and this is what the time frame is, or give me a time frame, and then you hold them to that. Um, people, um, I think, need need to be held accountable, and a lot of times they're not. And so if you don't hold them to that or um, show that, you know, you, you're going to call them again or email them again on that date and you do that, um, when they know that, then they will come back and get you what what you need but um it is a very slow and methodical process of how you have to do that and you have to kind of analyze who you're dealing with because everybody's a little different and works a little differently uh, so That's can you get on my team i find that too yeah well can you give us a little bit of just detail to help listeners when you say the way of sending emails because i hear this a lot i sent this out there no one's gotten back to me and no one wants to keep going yet so, so I often offer, look at, you have to assume that the other person isn't going to do what, what you expect. I call that managing the downside. They're not bad people, but you need to make it clear. If I haven't heard back by X point of time, this is what I'm going to do. So it sets in motion that get, get us a little detail. Like how do you send these emails in a way to kind of spark the interest? Cause I know a lot of people are just, they literally bang their heads cause they don't really know they've sent an email out to the ether and it just, nothing's coming back. Well, I find that when you CC certain people, um, so I have a team of people that, that work for me. So if I CC certain people, um, then sometimes I will get a response. If I don't get a response by CCing other people, because people don't want somebody else seeing that they're not doing what they're supposed to do, um, in the subject line, it's very important to put in there, read, and I put in capital letters, um, or I'll say urgent or response needed or important or different words like that. I always do a red receipt so you know somebody read. The worst thing is when you know somebody read it and they don't respond. That drives me crazy. So um, th if they don't do that, that's when you automatically go to the next level. So I, I have different kinds of ways of going where I go and when, but um, there is some very good ways to get people to respond to emails and follow through. I just had a situation this morning where, you know, a client wasn't getting a response. I went to somebody else that I knew this person would respond to, and I, I got a response. Um, it's unfortunate that you have to do that, but when they know that, they'll start responding to you. Very, very helpful. You know, Stephanie, I'm thinking about your own leadership journey, and if you were to just articulate, you know, how do you lead how how would you answer that you know i i always tell people that i will do anything i ask my team to do so um i'm i'm not one of those people that i'm not willing to um you know sweep the floors I'm, i i do everything uh 
but I also want my clients to be treated the way I want to be treated. So if I'm out buying a product or I'm purchasing something or I have a service, I want my clients to be treated the way I want to. And we live in a world now where things are very different, where everything is online um, and people don't talk to each other as much. And it becomes very frustrating, especially in the world that I'm in. So I, I do, um, I, I stress that this is very important. And I, I do actually have everybody CC me on every single email that they send out only because if I want to know what's going on, I want to see what's happening. And if there is something that I can jump in to help, um, I see we're a team. I find that that's very, very helpful. I don't want to get involved with every situation, but I find that it's better to be proactive and there's less issues that way. And so they know if I'm, if I'm being CC'd on everything, I know what's going on. If I'm not getting emails from my team, then I say to them, well, looks like you don't have any work today because I know that there's a million emails coming in. So I probably micromanage too much, but, you know, again, it's my reputation. And if I don't take care of my clients and, um, and the people that I work with, then we have issues. So I'm a, I, I, I micromanage more than most people probably should. Mm. Would you say that's an area of growth for you? Um, it's, it's hard to change, uh, you know, what do they say? Uh, a tiger's stripes or whatever, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've gotten better with it, but the problem is, is that, um, I have a new team. And so when you have a new team, um, and you have, like, I had somebody that just had a death in their family and they're gone to be honest with you. Um, if I didn't do this, it would be really problematic because we don't, we don't really have the bandwidth. And if I don't know what's going on, I'm actually there to, to step in and help. So I think you have to make it where we're all a team and working together. I think they know that I'm, I'm not trying to um, hurt them by, you know, being part of what's going on. But I really do believe as a manager or the owner of a company or, or the president, you need to be involved and know what's going on. And when you don't, that's when things go wrong. And I think what, why my clients like me is because they know that I know what's going on and I'm going to get it done. And I think the problem with companies now, now is that um, th there's this so many layers. Nobody knows what the other one's doing and they don't even know when there's an issue. So, you know, I, I think that um, there, there might be a way to balance it a little more, but I do think it's becoming more of a more of an issue where there's these, this hierarchy and management doesn't even know what's happening on the day to day in the trenches. And that's what makes the best companies when you're when you're involved and you understand the little things that are happening with the company and how you can grow and make that better so that you don't have to be involved with that. Because then you, you try, you, you know, you're verifying and you're trusting that what is being done is done and um, you can let go. But it takes a, a long time to develop that trust and know that things are happening. And uh, you have to build a very solid foundation and it doesn't happen right away, especially when you have turnover. Yeah. Listen, you've done an amazing job building your own business. And so my last question, just what is most fulfilling to you about what you do? 
helping people and making a difference. Um, you know, in, insurance is um, a maze and people are very frustrated and it's very expensive. And either you're paying too much for it or you're using it because you're not you're not well. So it really is not a feel good. Um, so when you can help somebody get through the system and, and have it work for them, it's, it's very satisfying. That is fantastic. So I'm going to thank you for taking time out of your busy day and serving clients and sharing your thoughts with us, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. And if I can be helpful in any way, I'm here and I'm cheering for you. And I thank you for being part of the solution. You take good care. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Ciao, ciao. That's fantastic. Okay, we are heading now to the Tar Heel State, to North Carolina, and I'm warmly welcoming Michael. Michael, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Hello, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for making time, and I'm really keen to hear what's top of mind for you. Uh, yeah, so right now, so... Um... So I just moved back to America a couple months ago because for the past three and a half years, um, I was living in China and in Taiwan. So um, I graduated from university about four years ago, and a couple months afterward, um, I moved to China to become a teacher and a recruiter. <laughs> so, um, so I lived in China for a year and a half. It was a great experience. I lived in Shanghai, um, and basically when so I had a great experience there. Was a, I, I loved my time there in China. And when COVID became a pandemic, I basically packed my bags. I moved to Taiwan and I lived there for two years and I continued my overseas journey. And now I'm back here in America. I've been back for a couple of months now. I'm just retransitioning back into American society. So it's been a very interesting and awkward experience, I would say. <laughs> Wow. 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 Yeah. My head is off to yeah. you. What a pioneer to head across the world um, to a whole new place. So just, um, just share with us, how did it happen that you first moved to Shanghai when you graduated? Was that something in the plan? I'm just curious how, how that developed. Like, um, so when I graduated, I just started job hunting around at first. Um, but I got introduced to it because I actually made a friend from China when I was at, when I was in college and she just introduced, uh, the whole, uh, teaching English and recruiting, uh, physician in East Asia and China specifically. So I decided to really do some digging and I'm like, wow, this sounds really interesting. So, um, she set me up with a school and I eventually just, it just, uh, one thing led to another. And I landed my very first job straight out of college in Shanghai. So as soon as I finished out my lease back in my university hometown, I literally just regrouped with my things and I packed up all my belongings into like two large suitcases. I moved straight to Shanghai. I jumped on that flight. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. So that's so great. So I just have to contrast because I do hear these stories about people kind of not making it in their back home with their parents and so um, is that, you know, I consider that just very pioneering. Is that no big deal? Mom and dad were like, sure, honey, go head over there. And, oh, and, no. And like when I told them about it, they were like, they were like, oh, please go for it. Because they knew that I had always wanted to move, them, move to the mainland because um, about two and a half years prior, I was living in Hong Kong. Um, that was my, that was, so I studied overseas in Hong Kong. 
so and I was and about a year later during my senior year of, of university I was like what's life like in the mainland <laughs> so I was interested in moving to either like Guangzhou in southern China or Shanghai or Beijing so I'm like okay what's life like in the mainland so and an opportunity just landed on my doorstep so I snatched it <laughs> Yeah, I love so, it. Honestly, I can't believe everything. Like, look in hindsight, I can't believe every, everything happened like that, you know. And I just jumped on that flight back in August 2018, and I never looked back. <laughs> I love this energy because I think so often, you know, we're kind of looking ahead, 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 and not necessarily embracing the moment. So, Michael, clearly, that is a that is a great strength of yours, and you should just know that that's not necessarily the easiest thing for lots and lots of people. Um, so, just um, just before we get back to transitioning, when you were there, just maybe a few ahas for us, like what you learned about yourself, what you learned about differences in living there, just to give us a little peek as to your experience. Right. So, when I first arrived in Shanghai. Um, Gosh, I remember the day that I even arrived at the airport. It was very, it was very chaotic. I didn't know what I was doing, even going through immigration. It was a very hot day in August. Um, but when I was there, I was just trying to navigate around the city. Because, Mike, when I first moved there, I wasn't living in downtown Shanghai. I was kind of living in, like, in the suburbs of Shanghai. So I was just trying to figure out, I'm like, okay, where is everything? Fortunately, like, my school was helping me out with, like, the – Moving into my new apartment, um, being uh, introduced to my new roommate. Um, he was actually from North Carolina himself as well. So that was uh, more, mm, less stressful to like room with somebody who's not, who's like, you know, culturally, culturally similar to me. Um, but yeah, like when I was there, what I did when I, when I first arrived, I was doing a lot of comparing um, to Hong Kong and it was, quite different, I would say, because even Hong Kong is very different from the mainland, in my opinion. Um, it's like, what did I learn about myself? I just learned how to navigate throughout a new, a, a new setting, because I'd never been to Shanghai before. I'd never been to this region of China before. Even when I went to the mainland when I was living in Hong Kong, I only went over to Guangzhou or Shenzhen. Um, but yeah, gosh, I mean... Just trying to navigate, uh, learning how to be a good teacher. I, I, I didn't have any teaching experience before I arrived in China. So just le like getting the groove of working with like a bunch of five-year-olds, you know, because I, I, I never interacted with, you know, a bunch of uh, five-year-olds in my entire life. So like my first class that I ever had, um, it was very intimidating, honestly. And But I, I figured it out. It took me a couple months to get in the groove of it. But I mean, I eventually figured it out and it was a great experience. And I made so many great friends and some of the greatest friends I've ever made in my entire life were actually in Shanghai. That's why, honestly, it's, looking back, it's definitely the best year of my life so far. Definitely that first year overseas in China. Oh, I'm so smiley about it. So, uh, so did you just magically speak Mandarin? Tell us a little bit about um, <laughs> that part. Yeah, so fun fact. Um, I only knew how to say hello and thank you. <laughs> in Mandarin when I first arrived. <laughs> I didn't know how to read. I didn't know how to write. But I mean, um, that's kind of the privilege, honestly, of foreign English teachers who first arrive in East Asia because the vast majority of us don't speak the local language, whether you move to uh, mainland China or South Korea or Japan or maybe somewhere in Southeast Asia. The vast majority of us English speakers, we don't really speak the local language. So I did have exposure to it because um, 
I used to live in Hong Kong, but even in Hong Kong, I have to be honest with you, I didn't make any effort to learn any Cantonese when I was in Hong Kong. <laughs> so, but when I first arrived, but um, honestly, during my first year in Shanghai, I, just because of the language barrier that I didn't really pursue at all, I just lived in a bubble. Like literally all my friends were all English speaking. Um, they were from around the world. They were all like um, foreigners, as they call it in China. <laughs> they were all like international people. Um, it, even the Chinese people that I hung out with, they all spoke English with me. So, yeah, yeah. So I only started to learn proper Chinese actually when I moved to Taiwan. So I can safely say I speak like specifically like Taiwanese Mandarin, which is a little different from mainland Mandarin, but for the most part, it's like the difference between British and American English. So, mm. yeah. Are you fairly fluent? Like you're pretty good in this Taiwanese Chinese? Um, fluent is a very strong term for me. I would say no. I'm still learning. Um, I would say on a scale from like one to ten, you know, like one being like ni hao <laughs> and ten being like fluent, I would give myself maybe a four. Yeah, a four. I, I oh, think, you're, yeah. You're better than, so, than, but than I, I am. <laughs> yeah, so... But I mean, I can, I can, um, I can, I'm much better at reading and writing than I am speaking. Cause I've always like, when I've learned my other, like when I learned Spanish way back when, um, I've always noticed I'm just, I'm a visual learner. So I'm just, I'm just much better at reading and writing Chinese than I am like speaking and listening to it. So. Well, I'm in awe. I'm just in awe because my one regret in life is not speaking yeah. Mandarin. I mean, I, really, I love I'm Chinese. Telling. Honestly, like I put this on my resume too. It's, it's definitely like my official hobby, like. I study it every day just because I love it. Even though I'm back in America, I still pursue it because not just because it'll provide an asset to me in my future career, which I hope it will be, um, but I just like the language itself. I just like the characters, and I just like being able to um, study a language that's just not very common here in America. Like, I mean, I would say if Americans learn a foreign language, I'd say the number one choice is Spanish, maybe French. It's definitely not Chinese, I would say given the fact that there are many Chinese Americans here in America, you know, or many Chinese immigrants here in America. So it's, it's yeah. cool. I, I love Chinese. Uh, I love it. Okay. So take us to, you land back here. Are you happy to be back? I mean, like what's the emotional experience for you? And then how are you thinking about what on earth is next? Yeah, totally. So um, when I first got back here, it was a bit of a reverse culture shock. I'm like, okay, I'm like, okay, what do I do now? But fortunately, before I came back, I had a lot of time to think about it if I wanted to come back or not. So after my semester finished, I just came back after Chinese New Year, and I just came back, and I basically executed my plan. So I just came back to my parents' house and threw all of my belongings into my car, and I just drove down to Florida to just, um, well, spend some time with family, just reconnect with family and friends. Fortunately, like I had fam, I still have family all over Florida, and I just wanted to be there because it was you know, the beautiful weather, of course. Um, but yeah, how do I feel about being back? I can safely say this is probably one of the most awkward phases of my life that I've been through so far because nobody really understands what I'm truly going through. With that being said, I don't have depression. If I'm just being honest with you, I don't have depression. I don't have anxiety. It's just kind of a weird phase because I am happy to be back. I'm, I'm happy to be around, surrounded by family and friends again. And I have a pretty big family and they live up and down the East Coast. And 
across the nation now. I have some family in California as well and a couple family members in Texas as well, just across the country. Um, and being surrounded by English speakers again, so I don't have to deal with a, a language barrier anymore, a strong one. Um, so, yeah, I would say I'm happy to be back, and I'm just happy to restart my life here in America because I'm coming back to America with a fresh perspective. I've been, I had been gone for three and a half years, and I only visited about three times. You know, I, I would have visited more, but, uh, well, the pandemic restricted me from doing that. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, yeah. I'm definitely happy to be back, and I'm just happy to be traveling while I'm job hunting. I'm executing my plan right now. I've been executing it ever since I arrived, and my I, my my plan has been it consists of three three goals: um, revisiting family, reconnecting with family and friends, and making new friends. Number two, uh, job hunting. So I've just been just job hunting on the road, and number three, figuring out where I want to live in America. And when it comes to the third factor, there are many candidates as far as I can see, because gosh, I'm open-minded to so many different things. You know, I have so many different interests, you know, again, just going back to what I just said a moment ago about coming back to America with a fresh perspective. Gosh, there's so many, I feel like that's actually one of the reasons why I came back to America is because I feel like the possibilities are now limitless for me and I'm coming back to America. And like, and I say that because in contrast to Taiwan and China, especially during the pandemic, my, my options were very limited because I still don't speak fluent Chinese. And my options were still very limited because if I wasn't a teacher and a recruiter, which I had been doing for three and a half years, I would have just been doing some ordinary desk job. And the pay honestly wasn't very good, honestly, from what I found. So I'm like, you know what? And I had been missing my family and friends. So yeah, just coming back to America with a fresh perspective because the possibilities even right now, I've been back, I've been back for you know like a minute or so, <laughs> but I still feel like the possibilities are limitless. So, I yeah. love, I love, I love the youthful exuberance. I'm gonna bottle it and I'm putting it on my table here. So thank you for that. So, job hunting. Yeah. How do you feel about that? And and maybe help listeners with how you're targeting it. You know, I like a lot of folks maybe are wondering, um, and it may be applicable for their own selves. Yeah, so for the job hunt, that's actually been a learning process for sure. I knew this would be the toughest part because, of course, factor A and factor C were like, you know, that's for my personal life. I, I, I'm pretty good with my personal life, you know, just figuring out where I want to live and reconnect with the family. That's, that's much easier in comparison to uh, job hunting. So when I first arrived, my resume looked terrible. Like, and, and, of course, I couldn't use my resume that I had been using in East Asia because um, – I've been using a resume for every country that I lived in, and I, I tailored my resume for every country that I moved to because, of course, I had to keep on updating it um, for the country and then for the new position. So I just had to recreate a new, brand-new resume for America. When I first created it, my friend, I had my friend look over, and she took like a resume course or something like this. She's like, Michael, this is like the worst resume I've ever seen. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> so we corrected it. It took like many revisions. It took like many hours of just revision and re-editing. But after we went through it, it took like a few days. She's like, okay, it looks great. So I updated it and make it look more formal, more proper. And I just used it. And even, so that was the resume part, but um, learning how to use LinkedIn, using my alumni network on LinkedIn uh, for my home university, 
um, learning how to network, uh, job hunting itself using ZipRecruiter or LinkedIn, Indeed, um, just some uh, various platforms. Using my connections, like when I first started my job hunts back in, like, so like February, March, when I started to take it more seriously, of course, um, I was really aiming high. I was really aiming high. So um, all my professional experience has been overseas as a teacher and a recruiter. So I did put that on my resume and make myself look good, of course. However, I was aiming really high. Like, for example, um, I was aiming for, like, Deloitte Consulting, for example, and I don't have any prior experience in consulting. So, of course, I'm going to get rejected. I mean, I, I know I shouldn't count myself out completely, but, I mean, no wonder I was getting ghosted or, you know, um, <laughs> not getting rejected, you know, because I was just aiming very high. And, you know, some when I tell people that, like, oh, you should still aim high. I'm like, uh, but sometimes you have to have a reality check and think, um, maybe we should, like, you know, uh, shoot a little or obviously still keep the hopes and dreams in mind at the back here on the, on the back burner. But, um, you know, I was really aiming high. Like I was looking for like, um, just finance positions. So long story short, when it comes to the job hunt, my number one problem for this job hunt is my lack of relevant experience. Even though I do put on my resume that I speak Chinese, I, I put that I'm a level two speaker of Chinese, um, Basically, like the jobs that I, I've been applying for, which have been, I have to be honest with you, when I first started out, has been a variety of jobs, like a variety of those. I was just aimlessly shooting, consulting, finance, entry-level finance positions, recruiting, uh, data science roles. Um, oh, my goodness. The list goes on because I had so many different interests, you know, oh and I'm still pursuing those. I keep a list on my phone, what I'm good at, what I can do, but... So it's, it's, I, I knew that I, I predicted that this would happen, just the job hunt itself and just being rejected, which is totally fine. But I guess the take home message is no matter how many times I've been rejected, I just get back up again and I just keep on trying. I love it. I'm going to have you stay on the line because I have some thoughts for you, but we have to wrap the show. So I'm going to thank you very much for being part of the solution and just making my day. Michael, you take good care. Okay, folks, yeah, and my you. thought <laughs> my thought for the week, and it's two thoughts, actually, after a visit to MoMA's exhibition of the Red Studio by Henri Matisse, open reality to possibility, and the whole of the artist is in their work. And that is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution. Kindly share this show. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.